This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 9th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Fertility rates in the United States are at historic lows. For Lyman Stone, senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, those low birth rates are of serious concern. He says you should be concerned, too. We spoke last week. You note in a, in a recent article that the American fertility rate has fallen to its lowest point in history, 1.73 babies per woman, according to some recent CDC data. So so what? Why, why should we care about that? <laughs> why should we care about uh, there not being enough people to uh, continue uh, our culture, our government, our way of life? Well, I would say you could care about it if you have any care at all about the future. Um, but more specifically, we could care about it because the average American says they want somewhere between 2.3 and 2.6 kids. So there's, if nothing else, an academically interesting question about why people say they want these kids but are not actually having them. We'd also care about it because it impacts uh, the financial viability of Social Security, uh, Medicare, but we could also care about because it impacts the financial viability of your own 401k or the ability to resell your house. Uh, if there's no people in the future to buy uh, hot dogs and iPhones, then companies that, makes hot, that make hot dogs and iPhones are not going to be very good retirement securities. So at the end of the day, uh, all of society is basically social security. It depends on a future generation and growth in that future generation uh, in order to uh, provide the benefits and returns to savings that older people uh, count on. So how well, uh, in your view, does, would let's say, a system of mass immigration to the United States, that is broad, welcoming uh, immigration policy, would that uh, stem the tide? Is that uh, are we are we am I missing something in in suggesting that maybe immigration is a an important uh, way to replace mm -hmm. the relatively low birth rates in the United States? Yes, yeah, so I'm in favor of higher immigration. Um, I think I probably have a lot of fellow travelers at Cato on that, um, but uh, but it, it really doesn't work in the long run for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, uh, I know this is this is going to uh, kind of blow everybody's mind, but it turns out immigrants are human beings uh, and they age. Uh, so yeah, you can bring them in, but at some point they get old too, which means that you have the same problem just with sort of more zeros after it because you've got a larger total market. So then the question is how long can you sustain high immigration rates? Uh, and it's worth noting that with essentially the same immigration policy um, over the last few decades, uh, net immigration rates have actually been falling. Uh, why is this? Well, it's because uh, fertility rates in most of our immigrant origin countries are falling. That is the supply of sort of this excess labor that's looking for somewhere to go is declining in most of the world, particularly Latin America, East Asia, and South Asia. So the sources of countries that, are, that have been sending a lot of immigrant, immigrants um, are actually sort of tailing off. Uh, beyond that, there are more rich countries that are trying to address their aging problem, their decline problem by opening to immigration. A good example of this is Japan. Japan historically has been so close to immigration, one of the lowest rates of, of uh, immigration in the world. But in recent years, they have dramatically expanded uh, their openness to immigration, which is sort of an untested experiment in, uh, in Japanese society. But what that means is that we're, we're facing a market for immigrants where the supply of potential international migrants is drying up to some extent. Uh, there's a caveat there about Africa, but that mostly applies to Europe, not the United States for just simple geographic reasons. Um, 
where the, the supply of immigrants is, is kind of drying up, whereas the number of different countries demanding immigrants is actually rising. That more and more countries are going, eh, you know, we, we kind of have a demographic problem. We, we might need to do something about that. And hey, immigration is an easy solution. So in the long run, uh, uh, just relying on immigration, it, it simply doesn't work uh, because uh, there's competition for migrants. Uh, the supply of migrants is somewhat determined by developing world demographics. Uh, and we're already seeing immigration rates in the U.S. decline even before uh, the Trump administration made policy moves uh, to make immigration more difficult. And, and the final thing is, of course, you can say, well, we should open, uh, open up for immigrants. Well, okay. Um, so what happens if we open up for immigrants? Well, if they're high-skilled immigrants, uh, the research suggests that like nothing happens. That basically we get these immigrants, they pay taxes, great, everyone's happy, no problem. If they're low-skilled immigrants, the research suggests that there is a political backlash. That is that politics is endogenous to our demographic position. So if you have low birth rates and high immigration rates, that is if a large share of your population growth is coming from uh, migration, uh, then you have you've you've cooked up the soup for a populist back for an anti-immigrant back backlash. Uh, this has been observed. Um, and pretty clearly demonstrated uh, in the European context, in the American context, um, and the estimated electoral effect of this is large enough to account for most of the uh, the change in power in recent European elections. So the point is, if you're bringing in low-skilled immigrants, and of course you're very likely to bring in lots of lower-skilled immigrants uh, as competition for those high-skilled immigrants heats up, um, you are creating a, a populist backlash. That being the case, you can't count on openness to immigrants being a sustainable solution because you'll bring in that huge first generation and that will create the backlash that will reduce uh, openness, policy openness in the future. So I don't think you can just consider policy like it's some ex nihilo thing that just sort of drops on and we declare it to be so and it shall be so forever. You have to understand that policy is responsive to demographic conditions. I was just thinking of uh, Homer Simpson in the Simpsons movie arriving in Alaska and the guy uh, welcoming to him, him to Alaska says, welcome to Alaska. Here's a thousand dollars. Unfortunately, the conversation that you and I are having about welcoming immigrants to the United States is not the broader conversation about immigration uh, going on right now. Um, with respect to uh, birth rates and uh, young people, uh, many of them are saddled with debt. Are there is there some clear data that we can point to to say uh, that young people, uh, due to uh, either choices they've made or some other government policy, are having fewer kids uh, mm -hmm. because of either student debt or the cost of housing or that sort of thing? Yeah, it's most clearly demonstrated with uh, the cost of housing um, and to some extent uh, occupational licensing. Um, but the cost of housing is, is really the strongest literature that whether you just look at changes in housing costs in recent years or whether you look at um, actually changes in local regulations on housing, uh, it turns out um, that uh, tighter regulations on housing, which of course drives up the price of housing, um, tends to suppress fertility, particularly for young Americans. So yeah, there's absolutely a case where the government, through an excess of regulation, 
um, whether it's on uh, excessive occupational closure through uh, strict licensing rules um, or uh, inflexible uh, land and real estate markets uh, that make it very difficult to afford housing for young families. Um, the government is absolutely, in some sense, artificially suppressing fertility through both of these policies. So, uh, and this may be get the hackles up of some uh of the audience of this particular podcast, but do you see a role for government at all? I mean, my, my preference would be for the government to have essentially no mm-hmm. uh, role in either nudging uh, people to have children or not have children. Mm-hmm. Well, I am not a libertarian, so I do see a role, but I'll I'll try and uh, justify uh, a government action in libertarian terms here, right? So the only time we would want government action from a libertarian perspective um, is when uh, is when it is necessary to do so to protect positive rights, um, or sorry, to protect negative rights. Um, so the right, you know, to be free of something someone else is doing to you, um, or in a case where we have some clearly demonstrated uh, externality, and we want the government to essentially assist, uh, come up with a way to assist people to internalize that externality. Right. So, um, uh, you know, if someone's being very noisy. Um, and the noise is going across a property line. Uh, we we don't want the government to just come in and heavy-handedly arrest the noisy person. We want the government instead, and we also don't want the uh, the person suffering the noise to walk over with a gun and shoot the other person. Um, both of these are problems. So we want the government to, you know, uh, either come up with some fair rule about when you can be noisy and how much, or we want the government. Uh, to come up with some kind of incentives compatible scheme, I don't know, how, like an like a uh, per, a traded permit for noise, or, right? You know, you can come up with all this creative stuff, right? But generally, uh, the libertarian perspective, we 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 want to minimize government infer, in intervention at all um, to those cases where it's it's really strictly necessary, um, and even when it is necessary, uh, we want to um, do it in as incentive compatible a way as possible. So then we get to the uh, the case of children. And we say, well, okay, is there is there someone's fundamental rights involved with children? And the answer is yes. And is the right of that child <laughs> that that child actually has rights? Uh, libertarianism um, generally does not consider the rights of an eight-year-old or a four-year-old uh, to be inferior to the rights of a twenty-three-year-old. Right? That the, these these people actually uh, both have rights as human beings. Um, we we tend to adopt a kind of um, uh, methodological egalitarianism here. So if that child has a certain right, um, then we have to ask, well, uh, what rights do they have? And generally, as most libertarians would say, we want some kind of equality of opportunity, not outcome, but of opportunity. We want people to have a, a certain level of opportunity to participate um, in an open and free society. So the question is, do all kids have even vaguely equal opportunity? And the answer is no, they don't at all. Uh, that in fact, many children have vastly unequal opportunities, often because of government uh, policies that uh, leave some groups essentially disenfranchised, um, sometimes because of a legacy of government policies that did so, even if there's not a current policy today. Um, but the point is that if we want to prepare people to have and experience equal opportunity and agency as adults, there are times where the government may need to intervene with them as children. And this is notable because the primary beneficiaries of a human being being born 
are not the parents. It's actually not even really the child. It's the wider society, right? As libertarians, we we would think that you would understand that um, uh, the there are gains from exchange, right? That we actually benefit from having other human beings around us because we engage in mutually beneficial exchange, mutually beneficial trade. Um, that that adding an extra human is actually not a bad thing, right? That actually human institutions, human civil society, human exchange is a great thing. We want big markets with lots of exchange, but that's impossible if there's no one to trade with, right? So the main beneficiary of a new human being born is all the people that human will trade with. But we don't treat child rearing that way. We expect parents to privatize the entire cost of childbearing, or not the entire, but the vast majority of the cost of childbearing, um, uh, despite the fact that the main benefits of a child being born uh, will accrue to society at large or other individuals in society who exchange with that child um, or future generations who will benefit from that child's labor as they are retiring, you know, things like this. Um, so there is a, a case here to be made um, that we have uh, individuals whose you know, basic rights to be free of coercion um, are violated. That is, there are children who are coerced to have less opportunity by the fact that their parents uh, are unable to or decline to provide it. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, we see that there is a, a compelling case um, that there are these large returns that are not privatized, that they are externalized, positive returns to society. So this makes a pretty compelling argument that there may be a case for society to uh, pay parents. I'll leave it to the uh, hordes on Twitter to argue with you on that point. Um, <laughs> but I will say, uh, with respect to the labor market, um, there are a lot of people who would like to make adjustments to how they work to make it easier to to raise children. What kinds of interventions do you see there that make uh, child rearing uh, more difficult for young people mm -hmm. today? Well, so uh, one of the biggest barriers um, to child rearing in American society or in any society relates to work. It's about attitudes towards work. It's about the idea that work is the highest, most fundamental value in life. Um, that people who hold this value tend to have lower fertility and they tend to, um, people who live around people who have those beliefs tend to have lower fertility. Um, countries at the country level, if your country tends to place a very high value on work, you tend to have less babies. Um, that there is a rivalry between um, uh, civilization perpetuating, perpetuating itself um, demographically and a civilization per perpetuating itself uh, economically. Um, now, there's also a complementarity at some level, but uh, you get to a sort of a certain point in the curve uh, where it bends back on itself um, and these things sort of uh, are at odds with each other. Um, so what we really want to do is we want to find a way, we want to ask, are there government policies that create work norms uh, that are hostile to the kinds of family life that people want? Well, then we have to say, what family life do people want? Again, on average, 2.3 to 2.6 kids. And if we survey, particularly women, and ask them, uh, do you want to be a full-time stay-at-home mom? Do you want to be full-time in the workplace? Do you want to be, you know, flexible job, whatever? Um, the share of women who would like to reduce their hours to spend more time at home is vastly greater than the share of women who would like to increase their hours to spend less time at home. 
Um, the same is it's a bit more complicated for men because there are relatively few men who are currently in that full-time staying at home position. Um, so it's a bit trickier in the survey is survey data is not as complete for men on that topic. Um, but at least for women, we see that the desire that people have, their expressed desire, their expressed preference um, is to be able to work from home more. And we see that when you give people work from home options, when you give people telework options, when you give people options for flexible jobs or job sharing or these kinds of ways to manage hours and location and commitment, people take them and they love them for the most part, that these options are widely used when employers make them available. So the question is, why aren't there more employers saying, look, we can hire a stay-at-home mom to work 20 hours. She's trained. She has a degree. She has skills. She just doesn't want to be away from her kids 50 hours a week. So let's hire her for 24 hours to do a decent job. Why don't they do that? Well, one answer is that there are a lot of uh, federal rules and state rules um, about uh, hours, basically, um, about uh, what you pay for certain hours, about requirements that go with it. Of course, there's an Obamacare mandate that uh, kicks in you know, at a certain number of hours, but there are a lot of these things that basically mean that employers either want to have workers who are kind of um, very rote routine tasks at one level that are generally kept in pretty um, uh, ir irregular work patterns, or you have full-time workers who you expect to put in, you know, 50, 60 hours a week or something, um, that, that we kind of have a two-tracking in our economic system. And this is actually common in a lot of societies. So Japan is like this. South Korea is like this. They're both like this much more extremely than we are. But this, uh, what's called high occupational closure or a, quote, salaryman model, um, is widely associated with uh, lower fertility. And the U.S. is heading even more that way. The the polarization in hours worked is growing. Um, and that's very concerning. What we, what we would like to see um, – is lots of people working a modest number of hours, not a few people working a very large number of hours and everyone else shut out of a career. Lyman Stone is a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 